So secrets, um, we've kind of been talking about a lot. We're, we're, we're studying out grace in the prison, uh, the prison epistles. We've been in Ephesians, Philippians, and now Colossians. And it's just been so great to, uh, to kind of get our heads around grace, right? And to, to learn how to preach the gospel of grace to ourselves. And if you, if you guys were here uh, at midweek, you may, you may have gotten one of these pamphlets that, that Ed did. And, and, and you got to love Ed. He, he worked so hard for us, right? And he, just, he went through Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and he, and he pulled out all of these really encouraging scriptures um, that tell us who God is, what he has done, and who we are. As a result, right, and, and 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 what kind of lives we will lead in response to that, and you know, just just in Colossians alone, I was just looking; it's on the back page. You know, it says we we've been qualified to share in the inheritance of, of God's people. Uh, he has rescued us. He, he has reconciled us. He has made us alive in Christ. Just great stuff to meditate on. Right. The interesting thing, though, is that try as you might. If you flip through this, you won't find Colossians 3, 5 through 11 on this pamphlet. And, 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 and coincidentally, that's what we're going to be studying today, right? So if you want to start turning there now, Colossians 3, 5 through 11. You know, you, you, you'll look at this passage when we get to it, and you'll think, oh, you'll think, oh I recognize this passage. This is that sin passage. Right. But, you know, do we do do we need to hear about that again? Right. I thought we were doing the grace thing. Right. But, um, you know, as I've been studying this out over the past couple of weeks, I'm, I'm really, really taken by the way Paul brings us to a powerful decision point. You know, both in Ephesians and in Colossians, he spends the majority of, of the first or more than half of the of the letter talking about. God and what he has done through Christ and who we are as a result and what we are and how we are as a result. And then he takes the, the end of both letters and, and he talks about how we're going to live in Christ, how we are called to live, how we are empowered to live because of God. But, but in the middle, and we're gonna, what we're going to talk about today, we're, we're, we're asked to make some decisions, right? We're asked to, to, to take care of some things, right? And I'm reminded of, of the characters we meet in Luke 18 and 19. So in Luke 18, we meet what, what we call the rich young ruler, the, the rich ruler, right? He comes to Jesus the way we come to Jesus. He says, how can I inherit eternal life? He and Jesus have a conversation. goes well until Jesus says, you know, there's one, there's one more thing. There's one thing you lack. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. <clears throat> And we always tend to get caught up on, ah, see that greedy guy? He was asked to sell his stuff. He wouldn't sell his stuff. No go, right? That's true, but it's, but it's not complete, right? It wasn't about, Jesus wanted him to follow him, right? Jesus wasn't rejecting him. He wasn't saying, ah, oh, you're a rich, greedy guy. You can't be around me. He said, no, no, follow me. But you just got to go take care of something first that's not compatible with following me. You know, you're asking how to get eternal life, but you're not willing to live eternal life right. unless you want to get rid of this stuff, right? And, and we know from the passage that, that the, this, this young man became very sad. And, and in the parallel passages of Matthew and Mark, it says he went away. Right? Apparently, we, sh we have to presume he did not inherit this eternal life that he was looking for. You contrast that with Zacchaeus in the very next chapter of Luke. This little guy... 
He, it says he wanted to see who Jesus was. I don't even know if he was interested in things spiritual at the time. He was a chief tax collector. He was greedy. He ripped people off. He was, a, he was considered a traitor amongst his, his countrymen. He meets Jesus, has a completely different reaction. He says, look, he exclaims, look, I'm getting rid of half my stuff. I'm giving away half my stuff to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, I will pay them back four times. And that was radical to hear from a tax collector, right? His fellow tax collectors would have been, what? What are you talking about? You don't do that. And Jesus' response was equally as radical. He says, today salvation has come to this house. And the other self-righteous Jews that would have heard that would have been like, what? Tax collectors don't get saved. Salvation doesn't come to tax collectors, right? This, this guy's a traitor. But it was, there was a change. You know, Zacchaeus made a powerful decision that the rich ruler wasn't willing to make, right? And we're called to make some decisions here in Colossians 3. And we'll start in verse 5 and why don't we just read it. <clears throat> it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger rage malice slander and filthy language from your lips do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator here there is no gentile or jew circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian scythian slave or free but christ is all and is in all. Here the title of today's lesson is Sin Through the Eyes of a Gracious God. That's pretty clever, right? Um, and my first point, first of only two points, is immorality, idolatry, and the wrath of God. See, you're already starting to get discouraged, right? Yeah, but hang in there. Right? You're stronger than this. We're going we're gonna to get through this. It's going to be awesome. Um, you know, Paul goes right after the immorality, right? Right. The sexual immorality he uses some different words to sort of describe the same thing. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, right? Evil desires. You know, this is nothing new. It's throughout the Bible, throughout the, the, the Old and the New Testament. This, 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 uh, this, this scrutiny that it gets, right? And, and we won't go there now, but, but you, should, you should read First uh, Corinthians six, starting in chapter thirteen, Paul Paul gives a really good dissertation into how God feels about this. And you know, some of the things he says, he says, he says, you know, you know, any other sin you, you commit outside of your body, but it's, but sexual immorality, you, com you it, it's in the body. It, you, you, you like you're sinning in the body. And he says, you're you're don't you know that you're members of the body of Christ? You know, how could you use a member of the body of Christ for something like that, right? He says, when you, he says in the passage, he says, if you, if you go out and, and, and get with a prostitute, for instance, he says, you're becoming, you're joining with her. You're becoming one with her. And of course, he's hearkening back to Genesis 2, where, where God describes marriage as the husband's, husband and wife becoming one flesh. And we know how, how, uh, how special that is to God and how precious that is to God and how encouraging that is and what a great gift that he's given us. And, you know, Paul's saying you would you would do that in an immoral way. You would you would do that in a way that that's not pleasing to guys. He says in he says in the past, he says, you're not your own. 
to do with as you will. You were bought with a price. Your, your, your body is God's temple. You should be honoring it. Right? He goes after greed. In, 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 you know, back in our passage in Colossians 3. Greed may not be the best uh, translation of, of the word. Here, here, well, since we're kind of on a Greek theme here. The, the word there is pleonexia. And um, it, 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 a better translation is covetousness. And if you go to, <clears throat> if, you, if you were looking at an ESV, that's the way it gets translated. It's covetousness, covetousness not greed. And this idea, it, it's not just covetousness. It's, uh, it's, it's coveting with sort of an implication of fraud or extortion. So, so essentially, you're willing to do wrong. To get these things that you're lusting after, that you're coveting, right? If you if you think about the first time we we learn about coveting, or, or, or one of the first times in the Bible, it's Exodus 20, Ten Commandments, right? You shall not covet. It says you now you shall not covet what your your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servants, and they say anything that is your neighbor's because you shouldn't have those things, right? Um, but you're willing to do. <coughs> Some shady things to get these things. And if you've ever been caught up in an obsession, right, whether it be sex or uh, you know, in, improper relationships or pornography or greed, you know, lusting for money or power or position or acceptance uh, or, or maybe drugs or alcohol, right, you, you know that, that when you're in the throes of that stuff, you will do wrong to satisfy that lust. You know, you will make powerful sacrifices to get the next encounter or the next click on that internet. You will you will hurt people to get what you want. You know, and that's why Paul says, I think, um, in verse five here, he says he uses the word idolatry. All right, we're talking about sin. We're talking about breaking rules. We're talking about weaknesses and. Uh, you know, addictions. And Paul, Paul throws in a new word. He says, I, it's idolatry. You know, you're giving these things a place in your life that only God should have. Amen. You're looking to these things to give you comfort or pleasure or, or, or a self-importance or, or acceptance. Whatever it is, you're making these things way more powerful than they're supposed to be. Only God should be that powerful. And the things that you're willing to do to worship these idols are things that you should only be willing to do for God, right? You are putting something before me. And Paul says <clears throat> in verse 6, he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, why, Tim, would you go and bring up the wrath of God when we're trying to talk about grace? You know, I think a great way to illustrate this for me is when I think about marriage, right? Now, I'm, I'm married. Uh, my, my, my marriage is not what I deserve, right? It's, it's, it, it was a gift, right? I, and I have my wife, Deanna. She's, she's here. She treats me way better than I deserve. And you, you, got, you guys can relate to this, right? She's, she loves me. She cares for me. She encourages me. She, she lifts me up. She forgives me. She's patient with me. Things that I don't deserve. You know, there are, there are, there are things that, 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 that I get from my wife that I don't get from anybody else. And there's things that she gives to me that she doesn't give to anybody else. 
And, and, and as long as I hold her up and give her the prominence that, that a wife deserves, and, and, and as long as she holds that place in my life exclusively, and as long as Jesus is our Lord, I feel pretty confident and I feel pretty good about our marriage. Right? I feel like things are going to go well for us. But the minute I come home with another woman, and I walk in the front door and, and she says, who's this? And I say, oh, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. You're still my wife. You're, you're the alpha woman, you know, and, and you're the only one. You know, but, you know, I thought that maybe, you know, I'd, from time to time, you know, you know, you know, when, when, when I go there, right, when I go there, I've taken her off her pedestal, right? She's not the wife that she's, the, the, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not looking to her as my wife the way I should. And, 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 and now all of a sudden we're on shaky ground. Now all of a sudden, you know, potentially all bets are off. And, and, and you outsiders looking in would be, oh, gee, do you think she'll end the marriage? Forget about what What have I done? Right? What, what do you mean? Will she end the marriage? Will she leave me? Will she kick me out? Look at look at what I've just done. Right. I've taken her off her spot where she is supposed to be. And yeah, I think that's how God looks at idolatry. Right. Let's go to uh, Isaiah 42. <clears throat> <clears throat> and in verse 8 of Isaiah 42, <clears throat> God says through Isaiah the prophet, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. He says, I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. And, and just like my wife would say, I am your wife. That's what you call me. That's my role. Right? I will not share you with anyone else. It's the same thing we're talking about here with God. So often God refers to idolatry as adultery. That's the metaphor that he uses. It breaks his heart. Right? We think we're breaking rules. We're breaking his heart. Right? This is not just this is these are not this is this is this is idolatry, right? And, and we, oh, well, what about grace? And well, yes, of course. But but I I know what I know what I have to wrestle with, and I'll leave it to you to wrestle with it on your own. But I have to ask myself, how much grace should I expect from a God whom I do not worship? How much grace should I expect from someone else's God? He's not my God anymore. If, if I'm if I'm into idolatry, he he makes it that way, right? There is not, you can't have both, right? We have to choose who is our God, right? And because of this, Paul says, if we go back into Colossians, <clears throat> he says at the very beginning of verse 5, he says, you've got to put this stuff to death, right? Put this, these sins of your earthly nature um, to death. Let's look, at, uh, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Just as, as, as we read this, I'm going to read a little bit here. Just kind of keep in mind this, this, this idea of putting things to death and, and, and why this is important. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God is speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. And he's about to take them into the promised land, right? 
and he gives them some instructions on what they should do once they've arrived, right? Once they've, once they've had their deliverance, once they've had their victories, once they have uh, been brought into this great promise that God has made for them. He says, now, now here's what you do. He says, when the Lord your God, starting in verse 1, chapter 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drive out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you. And will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles. And burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You know, God says, I rescued you from Egypt. That was my power. You couldn't have done it yourself. I led you through the desert. Free, right? There's nothing special about you Israelites. Other than the fact that I happen to love you. Right. I took care of you. I will. I'm about to take you into the promised land and give you something you don't deserve. It's going to be amazing. And and the, the enemy is waiting for you there. I will defeat them for you. I will deliver you from them. But you have to destroy them. He doesn't offer to do that for them. He will deliver you. As he delivers the Israelites, but he leaves it to you to destroy them. And, and if you think about, let's go back to Luke 18, right? So let's say you're one of these guys that, that kind of closes your ears every time someone reads from the Old Testament because you're a new covenant guy and you don't think this stuff applies to you. Let's go back to, uh, let's go back to Luke. And we talked about the rich young ruler in, 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 in chapter 18. He comes to Jesus, I want eternal life. You know, Jesus wants him to follow. He says, come follow me. But look at what Jesus did not do. Jesus did not say, All right, I tell you what, rich guy, um, you go hang out with John and, 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 uh, and Peter uh, and, and be sure to introduce yourself to Judas. He's greedy like you. You'll get along. Um, and and go, go get oriented. Go, go get into that eternal life thing you're looking for. And, and I, Jesus, I'll go dispose of your wealth for you. You know, it, it's a problem. It's an idol. It's not compatible with kingdom life. Uh, but I'll destroy it. You go, you go enjoy your eternal life. That's not what he said. He said, you go and sell it. I'll give you eternal life. That's not a problem. You can follow me. I'd be glad to have you. But you've got to go destroy that idol. Right? He wouldn't do it. <clears throat> You say, ah, Tim, that sounds like a work to me. Well, you call it what you will. It's in the Bible, right? It's just there, right? <clears throat> it says, how, so how do we put this sin to death, right? You know, I think it, it starts with our attitude towards it, right? Do we, do we see it for what it is? Do we see it the way God sees it? You know, when, uh, when, when, when Jesus spoke about it in Matthew 5, verse 29, he says, your eye causes you to sin, you, you pluck it out, right? Now, I, I, hopefully, you guys won't come back next week with your eyes plucked out. But 
But it, but it's an, it's an attitude, right? It's, it, this isn't. It's not about weakness. It's not about slipping up. I mean, those things happen. But but you're you're playing with idols here, right? You're 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 on the verge of no longer worshiping the God that is saving you, right? That has saved you. You know, I, I've I've heard stories about guys that uh, that get rid of the computers from their home. Right, they just get it out because of the potential stumbling block it can be. A few years back, um, there was a there was there was a book out. I think we read it as a church. It uh, fireproof. It was a marriage thing, right? Uh, and it and it had this movie that that went along with it. You know, of, of questionable production quality. But but you know, in the movie, there's this there's this couple. They're struggling. Their their marriage is on the verge of of, of falling apart. And um, you know, one of the many things that this guy struggles with is pornography. Right? He likes to get on the computer, click on things he shouldn't click on. His wife knows about this, and and you know, you can see it's it's, it's killing her. Right? It's it's eating her alive from the inside out. That she has to compete with this other thing in their marriage. Right? And as the movie progresses, of course, you know, they start to, things get better. And, and when the husband starts to repent, he takes the computer, and it's not one of these slick, flat screen, you know, computers. This is one of the 1990s computers, right? I mean, it's a monster. And he takes it out into his backyard with a ball bat and starts beating it, right? Crushing it. And his neighbor's looking on from the, from the, the you know, the other yard. And he's got this look on his face. And his neighbor must be thinking, what is this crazy guy doing? Well, this crazy guy is trying to put his sin to death, right? He's taking drastic measures, right, to put his sin to death. And we've, we've, we've done this. We've seen people do this. I, I've known people to quit jobs because it wasn't compatible for their faith. It, they were, it was competing with God's place. You know, I think we need to stop playing the confession, the confession game with each other, right? You know how it goes, right? Hey, bro, I need to get with you, man. I messed up. I need, you to, need, need to talk to you about something. Will you please pat me on the back and tell me to try harder? You know, no, it's, no. And then you go do it again, right? I mean, yes, we need to confess, but it needs to lead to something, right? We need to be striving to put these things to death. Amen? My next point, last point. Made new. In verse 9 of our text, oh, let's go back to it. If you're still in Deuteronomy like me, you need to turn back to Colossians. It says in verse 9, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. <clears throat> you know, in, in, in the early church, I've read that, and this wasn't like a canonized or practice or anything, but, but it wouldn't be uncommon for a fellow to show up to be baptized, and he'd have his clothes on, and he would take his clothes off to get in, maybe not all of them, but you know, they wore a lot of clothes back then, so robes and tunics and things like that, so... He'd take these things off and he would be baptized, right? He'd be buried in Christ, raised with Christ, Colossians chapter 2, right? But when he would come out of the water, they wouldn't give him his old clothes back, right? He said, you're not going to put the old clothes on. That's for the old self. You know, Colossians 3.3 uh, 3 that we read last week says, you died. Let's not put the dead man's clothes back on. You'd get new clothes, right? You'd get new, clean, maybe 
you know, pure, you know, pure white, whatever. But it would symbolize this new life that this guy is going to live. You died to the old self. You're going to live new now. You know, and new is different. New is different. You, know, you, you take different actions when you're new, right? We've been talking about sin, right? You see things differently when you've been made new. You see your sin for what it is. You see it's idolatry. You, you, have, you, have, you have different values. You have a different vision of life. It, it, you, it's repentance, right? We, we talk about repentance a lot. We get a lot of great teaching on repentance. We read great books on repentance. But I think that in practice, when we're just kind of to ourselves, I think we have this tendency to reduce repentance to just, I used to do that, now I don't. Right? Or I, I didn't used to do the things I should have done, but now I'm going to do it. We, we, we break it down to behavior. And that, that's a part of it for sure, but it's so small. It's such a narrow view. You, you are made new right? when we repent and when, we're, and when Christ makes us new. Um, and one of the things that we really need to see differently and have a new attitude towards is, is our self and our identity and our new identity in the body of Christ. Right? We're not, you know, when we're, when we're not in Christ, we're, you know, the Bible says we're outsiders, right? It says we're, uh, you know, we're enemies of God. We're, we're these lone wolf, independent contractor, free agents, right? Out there just for ourselves, right? But when we become in Christ, we, we're, we're, we, we have different values. We, we have different things that matter to us. You know, when we, when we study the Bible, you know, we, we, we'll study repentance, and that's like a, that's a big deal, and we have great studies from the scriptures on repentance. And then, kind of later, we'll, we'll say, oh, hey, hey bro, uh, we need to study the, the church, too. We need to talk about fellowship. It's kind of almost like an, it's almost sadly like an afterthought, you know. Let's, let's be sure to study the church, right? You know, we should, and that's fine, but we should, we should probably study the church while we study repentance, right? Because when, and I don't think we talk about it enough, but... When we're in Christ, we're, we're no longer self-centered. We're no longer self-focused. We're no longer self-serving. We're no longer even self-conscious. We are living for something greater. We're living out our role in the body of Christ. Because when we're all into self, then self becomes an idol. And we just got finished talking about idolatry and what that does to God. Right? Paul, Paul goes after this idea of worldly distinction so often throughout the Bible. And he, and he does it here. He says um, in verse 11, he says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Right? So for the proud Jew, he's like, don't care. Christ. You know, for the proud, snob, uh, Greek guy who was really fired up about not being a, a barbarian, he was so proud of his culture, so proud of his uh, learning, don't care. Christ. You know, for us, you know, I'm a, I'm a Harvard graduate. So what? Christ. You know, I'm, I'm the CEO. Don't care. You know, I'm, I'm an ad. Don't care. Christ. Christ is all. In. And it goes on the other side, too. You know, I have a lowly position in life. You know, I've got a Colossian might yeah, I'm a slave. Doesn't matter. Christ. Amen. Christ is all and is in all. And, and we are to live in his body. Right? We don't have these worldly distinctions. We're not selfish. We're not worshiping ourselves anymore. You know, when we when we see ourselves clearly as members of the body in fellowship with the other members, 
right? Depending on each other, right? In my own body, my, my mouth depends on the hand to feed it, right? Can't do it, right? We depend on each other. When we see that we impact each other for the good or for the bad, right? When we see that clearly, we're naturally going to have this motivation to, to engage with the power of Christ to conquer our sin. Amen. You know, and when, when you look at this sort of second set of sins in our passage today in verse uh, 8 and 9, you know, it says, uh, But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. And when I look at those sins, you know, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying, you know, something that occurs to me is those are fellowship killing sins. You know, those are self-serving relationship killers. I mean, think, think about anger and rage. You know, we're, we're all pretty well behaved when we get together, Right. You, know, we, you don't see a lot of anger flaring up in the fellowship or at your Bible talk or, or whatever, right? Think about, you, you think about your home. You think about the damage you've done to your marriage with your anger and rage. You know, think about the, the damage you've done with, to the relationship with your kids. And kids, think about the relationship with your parents and the damage that's been done with anger and rage. Yeah, that's right. and don't give yourself... A pass either, right? Don't get, oh, well, uh, Jesus got angry in, in John chapter 2 in the tomb. No, no, no. Your anger is almost never righteous, right? Your anger is more often motivated by selfishness, cowardice, bullying, manipulating, controlling. That's what your anger is all about. And that has no place in the fellowship. That has no use to the body of Christ. It destroys. It doesn't build. It doesn't strengthen. It doesn't, it doesn't lend to your new life. Right? It lends to your old life. It doesn't lend to your new self. You know, malice, slander, filthy language. And we can talk about those in a lot of different ways. But one thing that comes to my mind is those are all very divisive. Right? You know, slander and filthy language. It, they, they alienate. They, they, uh, they, they divide. They, they abuse. They're abusive, right? They're, they're not fitting uh, in, in the body of Christ. In, in, in Titus 3, uh, verse 10, Paul tells Titus, he says, You got a divisive person? Warn him once, then warn him twice, and then have nothing to do with him. He's not, this, this, this isn't good for the fellowship. This, this tears at the body. It does not build at the body. And of course, in Ephesians 4, we're told the only thing that should be coming out of our mouths are those that build others up according to their needs. That's, that's how you, that's a life-giving thing, right? These sins are life-destroying to the new life. They may have worked in your old life, but you're supposed to have a new life. You know, lying. Why don't we turn over to Proverbs? It's not as if, uh, it's not as if any of us aren't well-versed in lots of scriptures about lying. <clears throat> I think Proverbs 26 has, a, has an interesting take on it that I think we should, should meditate on for a minute. And we'll be in 26, verse 28. <clears throat> and it says there in verse 28, it says, A lying tongue hates those it hurts. 
and a flattering mouth works ruin. Dude, lying is hateful. Do you think about it that way? When you lie to your spouse, do you, do you, do you think that do you realize that you're being hateful toward her? When you lie to your kids, when you, kid, you when you lie to your parents, when you lie to a brother or sister in Christ, it's a hate. That's an act of hate. It destroys. It ruins. It's lying is a great way to get through life if you're selfish and self-centered and don't care about anybody else. At least in the short term, it's a wonderful tool, right? But it has no value if you're thinking about something else other than yourself. And it certainly has no value in the kingdom. It doesn't lend to the body. <laughs> I don't know what that is. All right, we're just going to press on. Let's, 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 uh, let's look at one more passage in, in Proverbs while we're here. And this, this, we'll be in Proverbs 14. This doesn't, this may not strike you right off the bat as a, as a scripture that sort of pertains to what we're talking about in, in terms of, you know, what, what builds the body versus what tears it down. But if you think about it a minute, you, I think it will. Um, chapter 14, verse 1 <clears throat> says, um, the wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands, the the foolish one tears hers down. You know, what, what relationships are you destroying with your selfishness, with your, with your sin? You know, what, what relationships in your, in your home or, or, or even here in the body? You know, what are you doing with your sin, with your self-centeredness? Are you building up the body or are you tearing it down? You know, the grace... Or the gospel of grace, rather. It's pretty simple when you boil it right down. You, Christ, through his death and resurrection, provided for us a salvation that we can never get on our own. And he gives us the opportunity to live this new life. That's right. Shouldn't we make the choice to worship him as a result of that and not idols? Right. Let's close out with one last scripture. And um, it's in Joshua chapter 24. Again, this is sort of similar to the the Deuteronomy passage in that, you know, God has delivered the Israelites into the promised land. He's done all these great things for them, right? And and, and he has delivered them from the enemies that were there waiting for them. And Joshua, uh, who's now leading them, he calls them all and, and he, has, he, has, he has a challenge for me. He asks them to make a choice, right? Just like Paul is asking us to make a choice. Just like Jesus asked the rich ruler to make a choice, right? Um, and I'm just going to read this and it, it, just kind of bear with me. It says in chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan, and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. 
Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before, I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you, but I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and riches you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And in verse 14, it says, Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Amen. You know, like the Israelites, God has conquered our enemies and given us salvation. His power is more than sufficient to overcome our sins. And we're called to live an amazing, holy, Christ-like life in Him. In verse 5 through 11 that we read today, it calls us to make choices that align with all of this. What will we worship? Let us, like Joshua, choose the Lord. Amen.